Welcome to Cross Lane Community Church, where we are committed to bringing people to Jesus. We hope you enjoy this online message. Matthew begins his account of Jesus with a genealogy, and his goal is to prove to a Jewish audience that Jesus is related to Abraham and that he also comes from the line of David. It was imperative that, that he be related to, to Jew, uh, uh, that he be Jewish, related to Abraham would do that, and uh, it, it, all the Jews knew that if, if they were going to have a Messiah, it was going to come uh, from David's line. So it was very important, as, as Matthew tried to lay this out, that he connected those dots, and he did that. And along the way, he undersc- underscores the names of quite a few pretty impressive people. And we'd say, well, that's great. That's what a, a genealogy should do. The problem is, in the genealogy of Matthew, there are some names in that genealogy that we would look at and go, you know, probably should have skipped over that one. Um, that's not a name that I would want us to have brought up. That's not a name that I want to associate with the, the, the Messiah, the Christ, uh, Jesus. And, and as you read the genealogy, it just seems like Matthew stops as if to force us to think about some of these people and what their labels were and what they did and, and how their reputations had been tainted. And, and we've been asking the question, why would he do that? And the answer we come up with is, it's part of the story. It's part of the story of Christmas that these people are in there, but more to the point, it is the point of the story. You and I are the point of the story. And Matthew's going to be writing to very, very religious people who believe that in order to have a a right standing with God, you you, you come to God based on uh, what you've done. You come based on things that you have avoided that you haven't done. You basically come and say, God, I'm, I'm coming to you today, and I need you to bless my babies, or I need you to bless my crops and God, I've been really good. I, I, did, I gave this much money, or I, I, I went to the temple, or I, I did these things, or I avoided doing some other things that I know I'm not supposed to do. And, and I know I'm not as good as some people, but I'm better than other people. And, and God, I, I just I, that's, that's the mindset of the people that are reading what Matthew is about to write. And generally speaking the platform that we stand on for our approach to God is, God, this is all the good things I've done. Look at how many times I've gone to church. I gave this much money. God, I really came through for you on the whole room to be real thing. You got to, you know, so therefore, because I've done these things, then you should do for me. Or because I have denied myself or because I've passed on some things, then God, you should do this for me. And that's the mindset that many times we bring to a relationship with God and, and Matthew knew, and, and we know, that if my ability to approach God and have a relationship with God is based on my ability to be good, I'm toast. I don't know about you, but if, if it depends on me being good, it's over for me. I couldn't have a relationship with Jesus if that were the case. I cannot perform good enough to have that kind of relationship. I would never have peace with God. All I would know is conflict if my relationship with Christ was built solely on my ability to perform and to be good. And Matthew knows that he is about to launch into the greatest story ever told, and that, that God is going to reiterate something that, that has been true all along, that humanity has been invited to approach God on a relational level, and the foundation of that relationship is not what they have and not what they have not done. That wasn't the foundation. The foundation of that relationship was God has done something on our behalf. That would change everything. Matthew is going to tell us the story of God sending his son into the world to be the Savior, not just of the Jews, not just of 
good people, but all people for all time. If you remember when the angel appears to the shepherds in the night, they say, we bring to you good news for all the world, for all people. All people. That includes us. That includes people who don't always get it right and who uh, probably would like to go back in life and change some things. So we would be able to approach God not based on this is what I've done and this is how good I am, but we would be able to approach God based on what Jesus has done for us. And what Matthew underscores in his genealogy is that God has distributed his grace and mercy all along, not just in the, in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well, to people who have not deserved it. And the reason that they are a part of the story is because they are the point of the story. The reason you and I are a part of the story is because not because we behaved well. We are the point. We, we, we don't get it right. And God said, I want to I show you how that factors into what I'm going to do for you. All along, God has chosen the unworthy. All along, God has chosen the sinners. And all along, God has chosen the lawbreakers because he is a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness. Now, I'm going to read to you to begin with from Matthew 1. I would, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want you to turn to Joshua chapter 2. All right, Joshua chapter 2, and then stick a finger there and find Joshua 6, Joshua chapter 2, and Joshua chapter 6. Um, and I'm going to read, while you're looking that up, I'm going to read from Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus. And um, if you don't know where Joshua is, it's toward the front of your Bible, about four, five, six chapters in, right around in there. Matthew 1.1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Now that's who we talked about last week, remember that? Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. We, we talked about her last week. And, and the fact that he throws her in there, it's like, why would you do that? But he did. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. And then he says this, the mother, whose mother was Rahab. Now, if you're a Jewish audience and you're reading this and everybody knew who Rahab was, they all go, <gasps> he put Rahab in there. Now, we know, don't we, that Rahab had a nickname. Rahab had a label. Say it with me, Rahab the... This isn't unusual. Throughout the Bible, you encounter people who had nicknames. See if you can take this little test with me. John the... Uriah the... Hittite, somebody got it. Yeah, Uriah the Hittite, a little shaky on that one. Uh, Alexander the, very good. Attila the, Conan the, <laughs> Buffy the, <laughs> Java the, there you go. So throughout history and throughout fiction, we encounter people who have labels, who have nicknames. Unfortunately, Rahab was known as Rahab the harlot. How'd you like that for a nickname? Rahab the harlot. Now, this creates some tension in the genealogy of Jesus. Rahab, as we will discover, wasn't even Jewish. She was Canaanite, which is kind of like the enemy. She was from the group that God sent the Israelites to move out of that, that part of the world so that he could establish Israel, which would become the kingdom that David would eventually rule. 
And right in the middle of the story of Jesus, just as we launch into the Christmas story, we encounter Rahab the harlot, and it creates a fair amount of tension. Because God's law was clear, especially when he gave the law to Moses, you can't have this in your midst. This kind of thing is not to go on. This kind of person is not to be among your, your midst. I'm a holy God. I don't want to tolerate that. But, and, and there was a pretty harsh pun, punishment for someone who was caught doing the kind of thing that, that Rahab did. So, so now we have a harlot in the middle of the Christmas story, and she is known as Rahab the harlot. And we just go, you know, Matthew, couldn't you have skipped over that? Couldn't you have just stuck with the guy names? I mean, couldn't you have just um, put on the brake for a minute and, and just remind the, the Jewish audience that Jesus was Jewish? But did you have to put these other names in there? But at the outset of this story, Matthew's writing out this genealogy, and he points us to the mercy and grace of Jesus in the lineage of Jesus. There's a woman whose reputation is tainted throughout her life, and her name would be Rahab. Why would he draw our attention to her? Because she is a part of the story, and because Rahab is the point of the story. I want to set this in context for you as we look at Joshua chapter 2. Um, Israel is a brand new nation. They have just left Egypt. Um, they have All they've ever known in Egypt is slavery, um, now they're free from Egypt, and they're about to go into the land that, that they, are, they call the, the, the promised land. Um, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob used to live there, and then they moved to Egypt, remember, when Joseph uh, rose to power in Egypt, and he literally saved them. We talked about that, too, last week. And, and when that happened, they moved to Egypt. Now they're getting ready to go back uh, to Canaan, which was their promised land. And when they started, when they were you know slaves in Egypt they started as just a handful of people but over the years they they grew their numbers grew to the point now they're somewhere between two and a half and three million people a lot of people for that day and age and they crossed the Jordan River and now they're about to move through an area that is controlled by the city of Jericho and Joshua is their leader so he sends a couple of guys some spies to Jericho to spy out the land and, and basically the idea is hey go figure out what we're up against go go look at this city go figure out how it's fortified tell us about the people do they look like they're well armed you know that kind of thing just uh, this is the land that God's promised and, and he's there they want to know what they're getting themselves into so they these two spies they go to Jericho they're in the city they're spying it out but they get spotted and so the people who spotted them go to the king and they say, look, we think we saw two Hebrews among us. Now, what you, what you understand is the city is, is it's tuned in to what's gone on with the Hebrew people. The, the reputation of the Hebrews has preceded them. And, and the city is already afraid of the Hebrews. And so when these two guys get spotted, it's like high alert in the city of Jericho. So they go to the king and they say, king, we, we're pretty sure we saw two Hebrews in our city. The king said, you go find them. Now, the last time these guys had been seen, they were ducking into a house that was built into the wall of Jericho, and, and archaeology that we believe was the north wall of Jericho. Here's an interesting thing for you to do tonight when you get home. Go to Google and Google archaeological um, uh, evidence or archaeological digs associated with the city of Jericho. You will find some fascinating reading that verifies what I'm uh, telling you today. Um, 
And, and this, this house was built into this fortified wall that was around the city of Jericho, and it happened to be uh, Rahab's house. And so the guards don't just, we don't, I don't think anyway, the Bible says that they went and inquired of Rahab about these two spies. Now, don't know how that went down. I kind of have a feeling the smart money is on the idea that they did not barge in. Why would they not barge in to the harlot's house? Because you never know who you're going to find in there, and your boss may be in there. And it just would not be so, you know, probably smart to just go knock on, on Rahab's door and say, hey, have you, have you seen some spies? And so that's what they do. Have you seen these two Hebrews? They were seen in your home. And Rahab replies, yes, they were here. But about sundown, they left, and, and just before the gates of the city were locked. Now, every night, they would lock the city gates. And if you were outside the city walls when they locked the city gates, you were out for the rest of the night. You were not getting into your city. You were not getting into your house. You were locked out. So this was, a, you know, things were all locked down good and tight. And she says to him, if you round up a posse and you go search for them, you probably are going to be able to track them down. So they leave and they go around looking through the city and around probably some guys on the outside. Uh, meanwhile, she goes up and talks to these Hebrew spies. And the Bible tells us how she hid them up either on a roof or up in an upper room kind of thing. She did this meticulous thing where she hid them. And uh, she goes up and she's going to have a conversation with them. And that's where we pick up the text today. Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. Before the spies laid down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord... Now, if you have a pen in your hand, circle the word Lord, because this is an interesting thing I'm about to show you. I know that the Lord has given this land to you. And the translation here, when she uses this word Lord, um, it's a Hebrew name for God that is very, very rarely used uh, to, to, to call him. This word she uses is very unique because it was a special, special Word. In fact, some Jewish leaders and some Jewish people would not even say this word out loud. They would only write the word. They wouldn't even say it out loud. But she uses the word. It's the most sacred name for God that they had. Now, we don't know what language this is done in. We don't know with this conversation she's having with the spies. We don't know if it's, if it's um, Hebrew or what they're speaking. It could have been that a translator was involved in this. Just not really sure. But when this text was written, they chose to describe God uh, the name that Rahab said was essentially the highest name for God. And what it meant was literally the existing one. That's what this word meant, the existing one. It was the highest name you could give God. It wasn't um, some kind of descriptive name. It was just the existing one. And she is showing huge respect for the God of the Hebrews when she says this. She, she's, she's saying, we believe that your God is the God above all gods. That's really what she's saying when she uses this word. It's, it's a huge uh, amount of respect that she is giving to the Lord God when she calls him this name. And, and she says, we believe that God, the existing one, has given you this land. We pick up, and, the, and the great, a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For, and now she's going to use an interesting uh, combination of words, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above 
and on the earth below. The Lord your God. The, the two different words for God. She, what she's saying is the great existing one who is the ruler. That's really what she's saying. We believe that he is the God of heaven and earth. And what she's saying is, in spite of everything I've been taught in my upbringing about gods and about how gods work and what they are, and in spite of the fact that I have Canaanite gods in my house, I believe that your God rules over all of those. He is the God. He is God most high. He is the, he is the existing one. And he rules over my household gods and our Canaanite gods and anything that I've ever known in my whole life. He is preeminent. So there's an amazing sense of faith that we get from Rahab just based on what she has heard about God. Very little content. She has not heard a lot. But her faith is, is huge. It's amazing. Verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Verse 14. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was a part of the city wall. She essentially says, I don't know, I don't know anything about your God. I just know I don't even really know what to call him. I just know that he's the ruler. And, and I'm telling you, I think that my family thinks that your God is the preeminent God. And the spies say, when we take this city, when we finally come in and, and take over this city, we're going to take that your family and, and all of your kin and, and because of your kindness to us, and we're going to look after you. So when it's safe, she lets them down through the window and she gives them specific directions about how to avoid being caught, and, and they make their way back to Joshua. Well, when they meet up with Joshua, they report, uh, hey, man, everybody in the city of Jericho is scared to death of us. In fact, by the time we get to Jericho, they may just open up the city and let us just walk right in. They're petrified of us. Our, our reputation has preceded us. They've heard what God's done. And, and, and so what happens next is a little bit of history that perhaps many of you have heard. What happens next is the battle that Joshua fought at the city of Jericho. How many of you know the song, the, the old song, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, right? You've sung that? We're not singing that this morning. Okay. This was so unusual what God was about to have them do. God has Joshua get his generals together, and, he, and they come together, and he says, okay, this is the plan. This is how we're going to take over the, the, the city of Jericho because it was ordained God had said you're gonna this is the land I want you to occupy you're gonna move in you're gonna take over the city you're gonna wipe these people out now that sounds harsh to us but listen it's what God wanted God wanted his people on this land and so he Joshua calls his generals together and he says listen this is how we're gonna do this leave your weapons at home for this one I know it sounds strange leave your weapons at home all you're gonna need are your hiking boots because we are gonna walk a lot we're gonna walk and here's the plan. We're, gonna, we're basically going to walk around the city that first time. Now, you've got to understand, there's about 2.5 million to 3 million people who make up the Hebrews. Now, probably not all of them are going to walk around the city, but a lot of these folks are going to walk around the city. And he said, we're just going to walk around the first day. One time, we're just going to walk around the city, and we'll be done. Second time, we're going to walk around one time. And, and, and as we get to the end, on the seventh day, we're going to walk around it seven times, 
and then there's going to be a trumpet blast, and then we're all going to shout, and they're just going to, they're not going to know what to do, and we're going to take over the city. Can you imagine the generals? No weapons. No, we're just going to walk and shout and blow trumpets. So that was the plan. And it was to be done in such a way, much the way we, we hope to do things around here. We, you know, just like this building we're getting ready to do, we've, we've entered that whole process with the idea that when it gets done, we won't be able to take credit for that. There's no way we could take credit for that. This battle at Jericho, same thing. When, when God finally gives them this city, there's no way they could look at one another and say, boy, aren't we great? Because nobody can be great walking around a city blowing trumpets and yelling at the, at the, at the fortified wall. That's not going to make you great unless God is on your side and then all of a sudden you realize that the real deal God who has showed up in the land of Canaan bringing these Israelite people back to their home, sure enough, they, they do that. They, they, they go according to plan. The first day they walk around one time. Second day they walk around one time. They come up on the seventh day. They walk around the city seven times. Can you imagine being on the inside of the city? I imagine that the, the anxiety level was pretty high. And then there's this huge trumpet blast. And then all these people start to shout. And you can go read about this and read what believing and non-believing scholars say about this. They, they have found the, the ruins at Jericho. It's fascinating. And there are all kinds of theories about why the wall fell down. I won't get into any of that. But, but the walls collapse and chaos ensues. And the people of Jericho are scared to death. And the people of Israel are basically taking everything. They set the city on fire. Archaeology um, verifies that fact. And in the midst of all this chaos and terror and bloodshed and all this stuff going on, all this stuff that I think we would find it even hard to imagine, God reaches in and spares one family. Now get this, listen to this. He spares one family because of a Canaanite prostitute. Just let that sink in for a minute. Here's how the story ends up. Turn to Joshua chapter 6. Verse 22. This is after they've taken the city and things have kind of settled down and Joshua fulfills the promise that the men have made to Rahab. We find this in Joshua 6.22. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath. Now skip to verse 25. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her. Because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And then you have to love this last phrase because this puts the whole story in a spot of history. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. And she lives among the Israelites to this day as the perfect picture, an illustration something that was still foreign to their way of thinking. The God of the Israelites is still a God of mercy and He's still a God of grace and He would even spare a foreigner, an outsider, an enemy and someone who by their very law should be judged and not allowed to live among them. And the storyteller says she lives among the Israelites to this very day. Now see, hundreds of years later when Jewish people are reading the genealogy of Jesus and they come across this in Matthew they, they know this story and it stands out as such an aberration to holiness to them and it, it stands out as such an aberration to the law that, 
all that should be. Why? Because she was the point of the story. And the Bible doesn't tell us this, but here's what we can kind of gather. One day, Rahab is, is living among the Jewish people, and one day she's doing her chores, and she's maybe hanging up her laundry or folding her laundry or making bread or something, and she, she sees this guy coming along, and his name is Salmon. And Salmon walks up to Rahab, and he says, Rahab, I was thinking, would you like to go get some coffee? And, and the next thing you know, Rahab and Salmon are spending a lot of time together, and they fall in love. And they end up having a little baby boy, and they give this boy the name, don't name your kid this, Boaz. I don't know why, it sounds like a funny name to me, but Boaz was his name. Boaz would grow up to be an older man, and he would be introduced to a young woman named Ruth. We did a series on Ruth. If you've never heard that, go to the website and listen to it. It's a great story. She has a whole book of the Bible named after her. Boaz and Ruth's great-grandson is actually King David. And see, Matthew pauses, and he brings all that to the memory of these Jewish readers of his because he knew that the story, the story of Rahab illustrates the entire story of the message of Jesus. Here's a woman condemned by the law of Moses. According to the law of Moses, she's an outcast, she's an outsider. She cannot be allowed to live among the people. Here's an outsider, the, the enemy, the lawbreaker, in a time when, when life was ruled by the law. And God says, in spite of my law, my grace is broader than my law. And my mercy is broader than my judgment. And my love and my sense of forgiveness can encompass all that I have said is right or wrong. And even though she's guilty because of her lifestyle, even though she's an outsider because of where she was born, still my grace and my love and my mercy is strong enough and broad enough not only to save Rahab, but to incorporate Rahab into the genealogy of Jesus. It's, it's absolutely incredible. It is the perfect illustration. But you know what? Her story is really not that far from our story. It, it's, it's not that far. Because just as she had a label, Rahab the harlot, if someone could kind of peel back the layers of our heart and, and kind of get in and see what we're about and where we've been and what we've done, if they could see our thoughts and our private behavior and our past, and the things that we don't want anybody to know, and the things that we don't talk about, and the things that we don't bring up, I think the truth is all of us have a label, don't we? Some of us have labels that we've just discovered. Some of us have labels that we've tried to distance ourselves from. Some of you have labels in the mind of your ex-husband or your ex-wife, and there's a whole drama thing there, and there's all kinds of labels going on. Some of us have labels because of our secrets. Some of us have labels because of our habits. And it's easy to look at somebody like Rahab the harlot and say, oh, wow, that, that is just, that's too much. It's too much. The truth is, in some ways, her story is our story. Because like Rahab, when you think about approaching God, as soon as you start to step up and say, God, here's what I want you to do for me, 
Maybe the first thing that comes to your mind is, wait a minute, I I need to back off because I realize there's no reason for God to take me seriously. I have not performed well enough and I'm not good enough. And with this label that I carry around with me everywhere I go, God certainly doesn't want to hear from the likes of me. There are all kinds of labels that we wear. Now I'm going to throw these out and I'm going to attach names to them. Please know that as I do this, I'm not singling anybody in our church out who has these names, okay? So just don't, if I say this, don't get your feelings hurt and think, he said that about me. It's not about you. It's purely for the sake of illustration, okay? Carrie the coveter. That's a label we have. Grace the greedy. Gary the glutton. Larry the luster. Chuck the cheater. James the jerk. Sam the swindler, Andy the addict, Barry the abuser, Jean the jealous, Faith the unfaithful. We all have labels. We all have stuff that can be applied to us in our name. And when people hear our name, they think, oh, that's this. Rahab the harlot. He just, he just, Matthew had to throw that in there. And perhaps it's because Matthew had a label as well, didn't he? Matthew was known as Matthew the tax collector. See, Matthew the tax collector was caught red-handed doing the thing that embarrassed him when Jesus, the Lord, walked up the shore from the shore in Capernaum. And he, he's looking Matthew straight in the face as he's collecting taxes. Just this horrible moment for, for Matthew when he realizes, oh no, it's Jesus. And he remembered that Jesus walked right up to him, Matthew the tax collector. And he looked at Matthew the tax collector and he didn't say, here's what he didn't say. He didn't say, Matthew, once you quit being a tax collector, then you can follow me. Matthew, I I want you to lay it all down and promise me that you'll never do it again and then you can follow me. That's not what Jesus said. Matthew, once you get a different label and once you get a different reputation, I want you to follow me. Matthew remembered that day when Jesus looked him in the eye and caught him red-handed collecting taxes and he said, Matthew, I want you to follow me. And Matthew knows he's about to tell the story of Jesus who invited all kinds of people to follow him while they were still wearing their label. Because his righteousness does not overshadow his mercy. And his holiness would never overshadow his grace. And his sense of forgiveness was broad enough to encompass everyone regardless of their label. And so Rahab the harlot would be enabled and given the opportunity to become, are you ready for this? The great, 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 great 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 grandmother of jesus rahab the harlot would wear the label great 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 grandmother of jesus which is the point of the story isn't that powerful doesn't that overwhelm you on some level when you realize that someone who would wear a label like rahab would find her place in the story of our Lord and Savior. My agenda is that 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 whole idea would overwhelm you this Christmas, that you would be moved to understand that the label you wear or have worn is not what God 
associates with you. Doesn't it move you to rethinking your approach to God, to beginning to think, maybe it's not about thinking to myself, well, I can approach God based on what I've done. Or God, I've been in church three weeks in a row, and have you noticed? And God, because of that, I'm going to negotiate with you. And God, I gave. And God, I I did this. And I, I served here. Isn't it true that this is a... The old way of thinking needs to be abandoned. That this idea that I did this for God and and so I'm going to get God to do this for me. We just need to leave that behind. Because the message of Christmas is that God has done for you and done for me what we couldn't do for ourselves. And the message of Christmas is that you and I have been invited while we were still wearing our label. You've been invited to lean into the God that leaned into you. To approach the God who has approached you in this season to say, I want to begin a relationship with you. And it's while you're still wearing that crazy label that I'm coming in your direction. And I know you'd love to get rid of the label. I want to invite you into a relationship not based on what you have or haven't done. In spite of your label, I want to invite you into a relationship based purely on what I have done for you. A relationship characterized by grace and mercy and forgiveness. And you say, Brett, is that true? (laughs) Does God look at me like that? Of course he does. That is the point of the story. And Matthew, before he even gets to the Jesus part, wants us to know that this has been God's agenda all along. To invite us into a relationship with him. And once that relationship has begun, he will begin to chip away at that label. He will begin to chip away at those things that we don't like. And here's something I just want to say real quick. You may have a label today. That does not prevent you from coming to God. And you may have been following God for a while, for maybe even a long time, and you still get associated with that label. Here's the thing. The label does not prevent you from coming to Christ. And when you do, our whole mission statement is built on this idea that when you come to Christ, he begins to change you. So as you spend time with Jesus, he's going to chip away at that thing, whatever it is, or that list of things. But if you've been following Jesus for five years of your life, or 10, or 20, you should look different than you did when you started because Jesus has been working on you and working on chipping away those things that do not glorify him. And if you don't look different today than you did five years ago or 10 years ago, you have to ask yourself the question, what difference does this make? What, what, why do I go to church and do I really, have I given God control of my life and have I opened up my life to say, God, do what you want to do in my world. If you're not different, you've got to ask yourself, what is wrong? I'm doing something wrong. But when we come to Christ, we are not prevented because of our label. Now let's all be honest. If we could peel back all the labels and all the stuff and, and people could know my heart and, and see what goes on in my inner being, wouldn't we all say, boy, there would be some labels there. Brett, I know there's a label attached to me. It's true. When I, when I see people in my past, there's a label and they would associate it with me and I can't do anything about it. It's just it, it, the people that know me, that's just my label. Brett, if you knew what I do in a week and, and week in and week out, and I don't really tell anybody and I don't want anybody to know, but if you knew, there would be a label. Brett, if you knew the thoughts that run through my mind when I see certain people, there would be a label. If you knew 
how jealous it, how jealousy goes through my heart when I see certain people and how pretty they are. If you knew how I covet my brother's things or my sister-in-law's house or my dad's car or whatever, would you be able to say this morning, I want to, I'm going to ask you to do something that might be a little uncomfortable. If you would say, yeah, if you would peel back my life and look into my heart, there probably, there's a label there. If, you, if that could be said of you, raise your hand. I want you to see something. Keep them up. Raise them high. Look at that. We're a mess. <laughs> We're a mess. I want to pray over you this morning. Because we've got to hear some new labels. We've got to readjust our thinking and we've got to see ourselves the way God sees us. So let's pray. God, everybody in this room, as I talk about labels, probably has something that they've heard applied to them or probably would apply to themselves. And these things, when we come to you at times like this, when the lights go low and we start to pray, the, the label is what comes to the surface. And we think to ourselves, well, I can't even pray. God doesn't want to hear from, from me. I'm Brett the fill in the blank. And God, these labels have become so much a part of us that it's, it's become a wedge between us and you. And I pray, Lord, that this morning we would see afresh that this baby that you sent into the world changed everything. And he would grow up and he would live a perfect life and he would die on the cross and he would raise from the dead and it would all be done to secure for me what I could not secure for myself so that I could wear new labels like forgiven and accepted and loved. And God, these are the labels that you would highlight about us. These are the things that you would, you would raise us up like a father raises up a child and hugs him and says, this is my son, this is my daughter. I love them, I forgive them, I accept them. So Father, this morning, could we embrace those labels for our life and not the old ones? All because of baby came into the world and changed it all. So Father, we give you thanks and we tell you that we love you this Christmas season. It's in Jesus' name we pray.